This morning is our second step in a path that uh, we're meaning to take very intentionally together. And, and our hope is to discover the treasure that, that Christians have long believed that God gives to those who follow Christ in faith. The treasure which is within us. My hope is very singular. It is that all of us would grow to see the riches which are already ours in Christ. Last week, I talked about how Paul prayed this for the folks in Ephesus. He saw them as people who, uh, in, in essence, were languishing in spiritual poverty, despite the fact that because of God's gift and grace, they were rich beyond measure. If you were not here last week, let me just say this very simply. We discussed together the promise that God made through Ezekiel. It was a promise to put in the heart of his people uh, a, a new heart of flesh after removing the heart of stone. And, and to give them a, a new spirit. And this promise from Ezekiel was accompanied by an astounding, forward-looking promise from God, which was, I'll put my own spirit in you, which is the promise of God's own presence. That is mind-blowing. And we started last week, and we're going to move forward in that this week. Uh, we're going to uh, acknowledge at the very start that this is a subject, the subject of the spirit, that can in fact be divisive for people. Do you know that maybe from your own church experiences? I do not bring this subject up before us in hopes of further dividing or giving you something to believe against another Christian. I don't want that. What I want instead is to open our eyes as simply as possible to the riches which are ours in Christ. Uh, the way we're going to uh, dive in this morning into this very complex subject is to take our time through one bit of teaching that Jesus offered to his first followers uh, which we're invited also to learn from, wherever we are in faith, by the way. And these three will, will get us into this subject this morning. It will not finish all of our uh, questions or answer them all, but it will get us into this subject with three very foundational questions about the Spirit. And that's the subject we're considering, the Spirit, which is a treasure. And those questions are these three, who, how, and what? Uh, the first, who is this treasure which God gives? Who is this Holy Spirit? That's the first question. Uh, the second, how? How does one receive this particular gift? Uh, how does the Holy Spirit actually dwell in a person? And then what? What does this treasure, what does the Holy Spirit do in a person? These three, who, how, and what, in 30 minutes. Easy, right? And, and listen now, this morning I have tweed on. I felt the need for tweed. And here's why. Because I, you, you think, is he trying to dress like a professor? Absolutely. I am. And, and, and for a reason, the subject matter is complicated. And not every time I stand will I aim at teaching lots of ideas, but this morning I want to. Uh, because I think it's the right way to get off uh, on this particular subject. Our guidance, this passage of Jesus, is from the Gospel of John. Uh, where the, the, the last block of material in that gospel is very intensive teaching from Jesus. And it's at the end of his life because he wanted his disciples to learn, and I want you to learn. I want to learn. Uh, because we love God with our hearts, but our minds also. So let's look at, at the, the few verses that will be our guide this morning. In John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, read like this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another 
paraclete. Just an aside, I've left that word in its Greek form. I've transliterated the Greek word, which is from parakletos, into paraclete because it's a very difficult word to capture with one English word. We'll come back to that. But Jesus promised, I will give you another paraclete to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Now these three verses are gonna give us our material this morning to address the questions of who and how and what in order to get off on the right foot with this particular uh, moment of teaching. You need to be where Jesus' followers were when they heard it. You know about the Last Supper? The very last time that Jesus had a meal with his followers who had given up everything to go along with him. If you don't know about it, imagine this. For three years, this character, this man Jesus, is so compelling and so attractive to you that you let everything else in life go to go with him. The way he teaches opens your mind to things you've never understood, but at last it's like a light has been turned on in the darkness. The deep insecurity in you, which always persisted before meeting him, it vanished when you got close to him because he gave you the sense that you were beloved by him through and through. And the more he knew about you, the more he loved you instead of the less. And that had never happened to you before. His way of dealing with other people in the world around you was so winsome and beautiful that you would do anything to go along with him. He reached across the boundary lines that religious people had drew in the sand and he went across them and loved people that no one else would love or touch and something in you, it awoke when you saw that and you wanted to be with him and now you have a meal with him and at this meal, he tells you, I'm going to depart from you all for good. One of you is gonna turn me over and I'm gonna be arrested and the place that I go, you cannot follow me. You will not be with me anymore like this after this meal. Now, if you can imagine what that would have felt like, now your mind and heart are ready to really understand the way that Jesus addresses the question of who in this teaching. If you can't relate, I, I hope that there's a day when you can. I hope that you know what it's like to put your hope in someone who is 100% trustworthy that you've felt the hands of God himself carrying you so that you are secure no matter what else happens in life. I hope that for you. All of those first listeners were there when Jesus said these words so that the question of who is he promising to give us in this moment is not an abstract idea. It's a question that comes when every fiber of your being is reeling. Your heart is shattered and broken because he's just told you that he's not gonna be with you anymore. And now all you want to know is how am I gonna make it in life? And in that moment, that's when Jesus teaches. And this is our first question. Who is promised? Who is it that God promises to put within us so that we have a treasure of inestimable value? So that we're rich beyond what anyone else could ever imagine? Who is it? Now I ask who and not what because Jesus' words here guide me and force me to ask of a personal identity rather than, listen now, a set of ideas or a thing You'll notice it in verse 17 in the personal pronouns that Jesus uses when he teaches those friends about what's coming. Do you see the personal pronouns there? Him, 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 and he, he. This is a personal presence and not a thing. It's the promise of an abiding and indwelling 
person. And here is where we have to apply our minds. If we want to know who this is, the answer requires precision. Listen, who is it? It is the promised treasure of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them forever. It is the treasure of the ongoing companionship of Jesus the Son with them even though he's going to depart. It's the treasure of the empowering presence of God himself always there in them rather than somewhere else. Now, if you've been following carefully, you might think, wait a minute, he's just given us three answers to one question. And yes, I have, but no, I haven't. So which is it? I'm wearing the tweed, so I'm allowed to say. <laughs> Listen now, Christians believe that the answer, which sounds like it's three different forms, the Holy Spirit, the Son in Jesus, and the Father himself, this is the way that Christians have decided to talk about the one true God, which follows the complexity of how the Scriptures speak of God. And our language has to be, in some places, mysterious and complicated. And that's nothing to run away from. Uh, one God who is fully present in three, who are united in a differentiated unity. This is called the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, which it arises not uh, from a single word in Scripture. You may know that the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. You can read from cover to cover in vain searching for that word. But, but for generations, Christians have believed that from the first page to the end, we have a picture of one God who is especially present by his own decision in three. Let me be specific here. God is one. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do some of you know those names? The God who invites a, a, a shepherd to leave his land and to go into a promise for the future, which has with it a very intentional purpose that God would bless the creation, which he loves, which ever since in Adam and Eve, the world turned away from him, had languished. God decides to persist in coming after them, even as they persist in running away from him. And finally, when the time was right, this God showed up on the scene in a new way, and he had a name, and his name was Jesus. So that when Jesus came into the world, the angel could say, Jesus is God with us. Not, listen now, a, a servant separate from God sent in his name, but rather the very embodiment of God himself, the God who was the one who created all things in his exact image there present with him as a baby. How does this work? Logically, let me say, as soon as you try to pursue this too deeply logically, you will run up against a mystery that will break your logic. And, and that is something that Christians accept. But here, this one God becomes in Christ, this one being who is with us, differentiated from the Father as the Son, but at the same time, one with God the Father. And that's who Jesus is. So that when one of the disciples asked Jesus to show the Father to them, because it would make it an awful lot easier, Jesus could say to him, you've been with me all this time and you still don't recognize me. Does anyone else know about that conversation that happened? between Jesus and Philip, it happened, listen now, after they finished the meal and before Jesus did this teaching. So that's also fresh in their minds. 
that this one claims to be God himself with us so that if we see him, we see the Father. And now, after the supper is done and that conversation with Philip is only 75 seconds behind them, I read it out loud and timed it, then, as they're dreading his absence, he then opens to them this promise of a personal presence will be with them and adds, look at the two other terms that are in this text, that this one is the spirit of truth who they know because, notice, he abides with you, Jesus says. Any careful reader of John's gospel knows that in John, the word truth is not an abstract concept, but rather it refers to a person. Do you know who? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. And that's in John's gospel as well. So when he says, the spirit of truth will be with you, he's saying the spirit of me. And then when he says further, the one who abides, if you go on reading in John, he teaches them that he will abide with them. And that Greek word means make my home with, like we use the word abode. So Jesus is now telling them that I will depart, but the one that will be in you is the spirit of me, Jesus, who embodied the father and the spirit that will be with them. It will represent Jesus to them as Jesus represented the father to us so that anyone who has this treasure and asks, who do I have, has the answer. The triune God has decided by his own sovereign will to be with us. Where? In the temple? No. Far up in heaven? No, but right in here. Now that is an astounding belief that Christians have. I suspect that if you're following me along, now you have more questions than before you, you had this idea. But listen, leave those questions aside and accept what I'm offering here, that Jesus taught his followers that if they uh, were with him there, that he would go away and give to them the very presence of God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit within them forever. Before we go on to the next question, imagine this. The power of the one who brought the entire universe into being with a word has decided to dwell in you. The one who loved the unlovable and had patience beyond what anyone could ever imagine and whose humility is beyond what you could ever dream that you would have for yourself, he himself, the son, in you. The spirit, the wind, the breath that God himself breathes and gives to bring life and guidance and help and everything that you'd ever needed right there inside of you. When? In the very moment when you most need Jesus and every single moment after that. Even when you forget him. That's the promise. Do you see it? That's the answer to who. Now, let's go back uh, to the second question, which is how. How? Because if, if you tell me that this is who can be in me, then I'm going to want to know, well, how does it happen? And here is a question that is, oh, it's just begging to divide us up. It is. It's begging us to have the right understanding so we can get away from other Christians and go to a different church. And, and what Jesus wanted with his gifts was to unite the followers of his. And so let's have that same spirit as we examine this one. If we would go back to Jesus' teaching with open eyes and a careful mind, in verse 15, we can already hear the answer of how one will receive it. Look at what he writes, or says, excuse me, John writes, in verse 15, if you love me, this is Jesus. That's a conditional statement. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Listen now, that's an indicative statement. It's a statement of fact, if this first thing happens, then the second thing will happen. The natural outcome of the condition is that this is what will take place. You will keep my commandments. And then from that end, I will ask the Father another 
statement of fact, an indicative declarative statement. This is what I will do if this first thing happens. And he will give you another paraclete. That is yet another indicative statement. So we have condition, three statements of fact, and then, the, and then it ends, verse 15, with a promise to be with you forever. And if we want to follow the reasoning logically, we are perfectly um, permitted to remove for the time being the center terms, the three center terms, and say, if this condition is met, then this promise is the outcome so that if we ask Jesus, how does one get the Spirit? Here's the answer. If you love me, Jesus says, he will be with you forever. And that's the first word that I'm going to ask all of us to have in our minds when we start seeking an answer for the question of how does the Spirit come to a person? Love. Not because I think it's the right answer, but because Jesus said it at a very critical moment in his life. If you love me, he says, you will have this Spirit forever. Now, I understand well that that is a simple answer to a complex question. And I also know the complexity of the New Testament's witness and the old as well to the subject of the Spirit. And even our question in John's Gospel, there are other places where Jesus speaks about how one receives the Spirit. In the other Gospels, there are, are still more conversations. There are moments in, in the narrative scenes in the Bible where you see the Spirit getting poured out. And then on into Acts, you see it yet again, over and over again, the Spirit coming. And one could ask of those texts, what do they teach? us about how. And then you could go on to read the epistles. And my goodness, Paul says an awful lot. And so do the other writers of those epistles about how one gets the spirit. But what is true about the fact that the answer is more complicated than the one that we have up here. On the other side, it's not less complicated. It is in fact more than this, but it's not less than this. And, and in every good subject, you have to start somewhere, right? And so here's the best place to start. So that when you come here or any other place, and you say, how does one get the Spirit? The first answer is, love Jesus. If you start to wonder, what am I supposed to believe doctrinally before I'm ready for the Spirit? Love Jesus. What are the behaviors that I'm supposed to cut out before Jesus will come and, and somehow dwell in me in the way he said, love Jesus? What are the ethical positions that I'm supposed to have on subjects which Christians divide up over before I'm a vessel that can love Jesus? What if I stopped behaving for a really long time and I feel so utterly empty and impoverished and I'm sure he hates me? How could I possibly ever get the spirit again? Love Jesus, what if I stop obeying him and I feel like I hate him on the inside and will he ever receive me again? Love Jesus. Do I sound like a broken record? Yes, I want to. And, and I want to because what I want is what I believe Jesus wanted in this moment when their hearts were most vulnerable and most in need of getting faithful guidance on a subject that was not an academic subject, but an everyday subject, an every moment subject from them, for them from then on about what it means to live in faith. The first thing is to love him. Now, someone's thinking, but hold on a second. He took out some conditional statements in the, in the middle. Was that like sleight of hand or sleight of PowerPoint or whatever? We use Keynote or PowerPoint? You don't know. Neither. Okay, look at the first conditional statement. 
or sorry, the first declarative statement after the condition. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on a second. It looks like there that the way you get the spirit is by keeping his commandments. You're supposed to take in a notebook every time the the letters there are in red, wherever Jesus speaks. And and if you could write down everything he ever said, and once you're doing all those things, then you get the spirit. Isn't that how it works? No, listen, if, if this were not, if it weren't for where this was spoken, maybe, maybe we could entertain that idea. But again, these words were given to the disciples right after the meal. And in John's gospel especially, and if you don't trust me, read this on your own and it will bless your heart to read it. Read it slowly and carefully. John chapter 13 starts right before Jesus meets with his disciples by telling the reader Jesus loved his disciples, and he loved them to the very end in this way. And then it tells about the supper. And then after that, Jesus says to them, I give you a new commandment. And he said that, that was still ringing in their ears when he said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The commandment he refers to is this. Listen now, Jesus said this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Do some of you know this? As I have loved you. And there are two in that. Please listen now. The first one is not that you should love other people. It's impossible sometimes, don't you think? I'm being serious, isn't it? As I have loved you is Jesus' way of saying, because and in the same way that I myself have just loved you. When they sat down at that table, and John is the one who recounts this, everything was set except there was no servant present to wash their dirty feet. There was a jar over in the corner and a towel there that was for the slave or the lowest person in the room to put on before they ate this meal to wash everybody's feet after traveling all those miles to be there together in that sacred place. Every single person was sitting around the table and thinking, the lowest person here has to get up, but I'm sure it's not me. Do you know we think like that? The one who was the highest person at the table and everybody knew it and he knew it too. Jesus in that moment stood up And all of the disciples watched him stand. And he walked over and he took out his outer robe. And he bent down and he put the servant's towel on his own waist. And then one by one, he began to wash their dirty feet. And when he got to Peter's feet, he was the only one brave enough to say, you cannot do this, Lord, absolutely not. I should be washing your feet. That's his way of saying, I should love you. And what Jesus says to him is, unless you let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. And I will translate that to say, the first thing is that you let me love you. And only then can you have any hope to love me or anyone else in the world. And so Jesus' first commandment to you, and if you will follow this commandment, then you will love him, and then you will have his spirit within you, is that you let him love you for goodness sake. And you might say, I'm too dirty, I'm too broken, I'm too far away. Of course you are, but that's his love. His love is the love of a Lord who humbles himself to become a servant, to wash the dirt off of you so that you can finally get on the path of loving others. And so how do I receive the Spirit? Step number one, let Jesus love you. And when you let him love you, then love him. What do I I have to believe about the Spirit? Let Jesus love you and then love him for it. Be grateful, be glad, be overjoyed that he's rescued and delivered and taken your dirty soul in his hands and washed it, not with water from a basin, but blood from his own body, from the body of the one who embodies the God who created everything. Can you believe it? I can't. That's why I keep going, wow. And then when you let him love you, then what follows is the other part of that commandment, which is that you love others in the way that he loved you. 
which means unconditionally, without any reservation, with no strings attached, purely for their benevolence. What if they behave wrongly, believe wrongly, aren't in the right place? Yeah, okay, fine, love them. You do that and then you have room in this heart that God gave you for the spirit. And that's good. That's what it was made for. Now, there's one more question that we have up there, which is, okay, if I manage to love Jesus by letting him love me and turn out to love others, then what... And that's our third question. What should I anticipate that the Spirit will do in me? I hear, I want to direct your attention to the word which I left in Greek because of how it communicates uh, there better than in its English alternatives. The word is paraclete. A Greek often makes compound words by pushing together a prefix and then a verb. And this is one of those. The word para, which is a prefix in Greek, often means alongside. And that's what it would have meant for sure in the ears of these first hearers at that meal, that Jesus was promising something para alongside. The verb, which is kletos, which makes para uh, klet, means called or summoned. And so the promise here is that Jesus will speak to the Father and he will invite, and this is literally, one called alongside them in every moment where they don't have what they need to keep going. Is that every moment for you? I mean, really. How many moments are you believing that you're the only one who knows how you're just winging it in life? You're pretending, you're barely making it. The one called alongside before it becomes a religious word that gets translated into the Bible would have been an ordinary word in Greek in the ears of those first friends of Jesus. Paraclete is a word that's used in legal parlance back then to describe an advocate. An advocate is the one who advocates for you, who stands in vocare in Latin is to speak, the one who stands beside you to speak on your behalf when you are being accused of something. And here, Jesus wants them to know that when they envision themselves standing before God, the perfect father who's never done anything wrong and is holy in a way they can't even imagine, and they, they languish in their guilt and their sense of, of regret for their sin, Jesus wants them to picture that his own presence will be standing there beside them and advocating for them, saying, wait a minute, let's give mercy to this beloved daughter or son of mine. I'm for this one. What do you say? And then he also knows that you will live your life with a voice inside of you that will be the opposite of an advocate. And do you know what that is? An accuser. The voice that says, don't think so much of yourself. You're not worth it. And here, Jesus is saying, the spirit will be in you to come alongside you in those moments to speak his voice, which says, you are worth everything to me. I knew exactly what I was getting myself into when I gave myself for you. I didn't make a mistake. I love you. That's paraclete, the one who comes alongside. The second way it's used, especially in, in prominent in the Old Testament, uh, when, when that, those scriptures were, were turned from Hebrew into Greek, the term over and over, paraclete, is the one that is used by the authors to translate the word console or comfort. Could you use a little more comfort in here? Yes or no? Yeah. God is presented over and over again in the scriptures as the one who is not far away when we're brokenhearted or bereft because things that are outside of our control are crushing us instead of lifting us. And over and over again, the promise is that God will be with us to comfort us 
And the images that are used are so rich and so beautiful. But what you need to hear me say this morning is that Jesus' promise, when he promises this paraclete, is also the the promise of comfort from the inside out. When I thought my foot is slipping, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Would you like to be able to say that from the inside? Would you like to know which scripture that comes from? You'll have to sign up for the text messages. (laughs) You ever hear that term like a shameless plug, right? I am so happy to present that to you for this reason. I deeply want, I want it with everything in me to be an encourager and an equipper to you. Not today only, but each day, except for Saturdays. Don't expect the text on Saturday. All right, I'm sleeping in, pajamas, fire, resting, Okay, but every other day, and I can't do it, but God's word with little bits of scripture and and suggestions for prayer, God can do that and wants to. The last and most prominent way that that word paraclete would have rung in those first hearers' ears was with the term helper. And helper is a broad term. The one called alongside to help in every way that I can't even imagine, and maybe you don't even know yet, but someday you'll find that you need that kind of help. Uh, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my might. He's become my salvation. Again, a, a simple expression of the experience of God's presence to help from the psalmist. And that also is what Jesus wants every one of those first followers of his to expect and for you too to not only wish for but to experience. To have the presence of the Spirit, this God within you so that you know his advocation for you, his consolation and his help. Uh, In the the weeks ahead, uh, this is the specific work that I want to undertake. It is to say directly how is it that we receive these three, these last three of what the paraclete does especially help. How do we receive the Holy Spirit's help? I want you not only to think about it, but to live it. And so next week we'll begin very particularly going uh, outside of the Gospels uh, to an epistle to see how is it that the Spirit helps us do and also want to do the good things that God wants us to do. How do we, how do, we do that? And then to see after that, what, what about in the moments when I make mistakes and, and my shame drives me away from God? How does the Spirit help me in moments like that with mercy and assurance of God's forgiveness? That will be two weeks from now. And what about this? What about when I'm finally ready to say, okay, I, I'm done making myself into my failures and I'm ready to trust God's grace in me. What about how do I get to be a part of this movement that he's building up here? We'll look at the way the Spirit empowered God's first people for their task in God's mission and and how that will look for us here. And by the way, that does happen to overlap with February 10th when in the evening I'll talk about the vision that God is giving to us, which is a vision not to be going under our own strength. God help us in the world we inflict with our own ideas when we do that but rather to be in God's power, what he means for us to be in the world. And then particularly the next week, and yeah, I'm giving, I'm giving a description of what's coming. When you personally say, what are the tools that he's given to me to work with young people? Uh, to pour my heart out in prayer for people who need it. Uh, to be hospitable, to, to sing, and to play my instrument. What is it? I will see the way the Spirit has endowed us with very particular abilities. And then lastly, what about when I've done everything in my power, but I'm still buried under challenges 
My husband's ill. My children aren't going where I wish they were. The people around me who bore the name of Christ have turned into my judges instead of my friends. What then? Uh, the last uh, time we gather around the subject, we'll learn about affliction and how the Spirit bears us through affliction. Um, for this morning, I'm gonna ask you to join me in prayer, thanking Jesus for who? Um, rejoicing in how? And, and then... Uh, asking God to help us know what the Spirit is at work doing in us. Let's do that. Let's join our hearts in prayer together. God, we love you and we thank you for the teaching of Jesus in this critical moment in his ministry with his first followers. And we thank you for the way it opens a door to us to see the astounding content of who you have promised to give in the Spirit that dwells within us, even yourself and Christ and the Spirit. Uh, we thank you that the first step to receive this immeasurable treasure is love. To let you love us and then to love others. God, would you please, for having gathered us together here, would you please have softened every heart so that our first inclination is to seek to let you love us and then to turn and love others. And then lastly, would you please make us sensitive to what you mean to do in us as our advocate and as our counselor and as our helper this morning and in this week ahead and in the weeks ahead also. We're so grateful for you. Thank you. We love you in Jesus' name.